Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Liu. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Narjus Flores, Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School. We are recording live from Singapore at the 2023 World Conference on Lung Cancer, and we're discussing with the presenters and the discussions of the Presidential Symposium. I'm here with my co-host. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu from Georgetown University, and we have some of the speakers and uh, scientists behind the major abstracts from this Monday of the 2023 World Conference on Lung Cancer. Let's start with one of the topics from the Presidential Plenary. We're joined by Professor Eric Lim. Dr. Lim is a consultant thoracic surgeon at the Royal Brompton Hospital and professor of thoracic surgery at the National Heart and Lung Institute of Imperial College London. Eric, you presented the long-awaited MARS-2 study. This focused on patients with resectable mesothelioma, talking about our initial approach. And while historically it's included surgery, your group asked the question of whether it should. Can you tell us a little bit about mesothelioma, resectable mesothelioma, and the MARS-2 study? Thank you. So we've always, always offered surgery for mesothelioma, and there are three principal operations, which I like to call Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and Baby Bear. So for the papa bear operation, which is uh, extrapural pneumonectomy, we remove the entire lung, the entire diaphragm, and the pericardium. The UK mesothelioma investigators undertook the study mass. We showed a 90% increase in the risk of death. The baby bear operation I call partial per, uh, is called partial pyrectomy, and that removes the diseased part of the, of the lining of the chest to reduce the risk and possibility of pleural effusions. The UK undertook the mesobat study, showing that the benefit was no better than putting in a pleural drain. And therefore, that leaves the principal operation, extended pyrectomy decortication, which removes all the disease from the lining of the chest, the lining of the lung, and where required, the diaphragm and pericardium, but sparing the lung, which is called extended pyrectomy decortication, the focus of MAS-2. The results of MAS-2 suggest that the operation was associated with a 28% increase in the risk of death. In addition, the incidence of serious complications were 3.6 times higher in the surgical arm. Quality of life, as you expect, is lower, and for every single statistically significant outcome, it was poorer for surgery. Finally, the costs were higher than compared to chemotherapy alone. Eric, you started off uh, your presentation, uh, which was very well received, uh, by describing the, the the design, and you know, patients all received chemotherapy randomized to surgery or not, and it was calculated, it was powered, it was designed to show a survival benefit. And you said something really important that I'd like you to, to stress again to everyone listening, designing trials, and maybe tell us how you did it. You powered it to show a significant survival benefit, but when you were defining what significant was. You got the input not just from your colleagues, but from the patients, right? Yeah, but more importantly, we actually got it from the patients. So in the design of the trial, it's quite hard to come up with a minimum clinically important difference. And the primary outcome of any trial is is measured against that value. And what we did was we got a room full of patients with mesothelioma, and we asked them to actually uh, write down. We didn't ask them to articulate it, to write down on, on paper what their anticipated benefit 
which they would want to see because the operation was described, the risk of death was described, and the morbidity was described to them. And after they finished finding out on a piece of paper, then we actually got the average of it. And they came up with the figure of a 30% relative improvement in survival for them to want to be able to go for the operation with the results of MAS2. So if the MAS2 was positive at a value of 10 or 20%, that wouldn't be good enough for our patient group. What's more interesting is that if 30% is beneficial, then we would consider uh, 30% worse survival as harmful. Now, if you uh, if you pay close attention, I never use the word harmful because we are 2% short on reflection. So the results of MAS2 are concluded that surgery is associated with a significant risk of death. We stop short just to say that surgery is harmful. As you discuss the results, we know there are differences uh, when it comes to different subtypes of mesothelioma. And in this trial, it's not only about surgery, but studying these subtypes and how surgery or chemotherapy may be beneficial. Can you share with our audience what were the differences that you saw between epithelioid and the other subtypes? Right. So there are three principal subtypes of mesothelioma. You have epithelioid, you have sarcomatoid, which is a very poor prognosis. And if you have a mix, then we call it biphasic. Current guidelines, such as the ASCO guidelines, do not recommend surgery for sarcomatoid mesothelioma. And it has never, ever been evaluated before in a randomized controlled trial setting. So MAS2 is the first time where non-epithelial disease has been evaluated in a randomized setting. And we found that what we perceive to be correct, which is patients do worse for surgery with sarcomatoid disease, was proven mathematically uh, by virtue of a statistical interaction test. And so for the first time, we were able to say that one operation done on two different types of disease actually gives two very different outcomes. I think that's very, very, very important. And we want to expand a little bit on the primary outcome, which is overall survival, which it comes to that. How will you explain to a patient now with these data in clinic the benefits and the risks of proceeding only with systemic therapy uh, based on the data that you just presented? So I, I believe in shared decision-making for patients always. And the honest conversation to have would be that if you do decide to go for an operation, then you increase your risk of death by 28%. In addition, your risk of complications is 3.6 times higher compared to chemotherapy alone, and your quality of life is worse. And I think very few patients, if they receive that information, would actually choose to have the operation. And the question that we saw about the results was the mortality, the 30-day and 90-day mortality. Can you walk us through that? Uh, so the figure is the same, it's 3.8%, and uh, we benchmarked it across uh, other surgical series, and we're not too far away. I think the Toronto group for, has a very, very good, uh, almost uh, you know, negligible uh, mortality rate. Um, but from a national perspective, for mesothelioma surgery, for uh, extended parasitic medication, uh, it's about below or at our national average for the United Kingdom. Eric, do you think these data are immediately practice-changing? I think practice-changing depends on the ability for people to receive or uptake the information and for clinicians to make an informed decision. And I think across the world, that's going to be quite difficult because people have very, very strong views and may not 
have sufficient equipoise or have views to to change insufficient to want to actually move to change the practice because of lack of knowledge on clinical trial design or the results which may they may not accept. But for you, for sure, one hundred percent. We, you know, I, I don't think twenty eight percent and thirty percent is very different. I personally would say it's harmful. Thank you so much. After your presentation, uh, we have discussed in Dr. Paula Ugalde, who is an ISLC board member, a thoracic surgeon, a Brigham and Women's, and a professor in Harvard Medical School. My first question to you, Dr. Ugalde, is what was your first impression when you saw the data that was being presented? The trial itself, it's outstanding. I mean, the way that the UK has organized themselves to put together a national trial addressing, you, you should not forget that this is a rare disease. And if you compare it to lung cancer, where we, we see in the six-digit numbers, um, this is estimated to happen, mesothelioma, in 30,000 worldwide. So to think that the UK, through the pandemic, was able to organize a trial comparing treatment strategies is definitely outstanding. Regarding the results, it is unquestionable that the, there was no overall survival because benefit, because if you look at the confidence interval, the hazard ratio was 1.28, unquestionable, but if you look at the confidence interval, it's 1.02 to 1.6. I mean, well, almost at one, right? It's 1.02. It's, it, you know, it's, it's like we're talking about numbers. So I believe that the trial was well-designed in a sense that it was powered to see the benefit. We do not see a benefit in the surgical arm. And uh, what I try to address during my presentation is that this is a very morbid procedure, as we all know and should definitely be tackled by experienced surgeon and high-volume centers. So I think that in my point of view, with this trial, we should put an end to low-volume centers performing this procedure. Now, the other issue is what's high-volume center, right? I think there's a very valid point, and my next question is related to that, because we see several ways in, oh, the surgery may be performed, and how can the surgery be standardized when we have different settings across the world, from low-middle-income country to high-income country. So, Dr. Lim, you wanted to add something to that? Yeah, so we had already anticipated these questions at the design stage of the study. So we've imputed uh, analyses to overcome this. The first big statement surgeons make is that uh, this is awful except in my hands. So that's a very famous surgical statement. So in order to uh, overcome this in my hands issue, what we did was we conducted the operation in five surgical sites, four of which are national centers of excellence for mesothelioma. We had a Three first-wave surgeons, which is David Waller, John Edwards, and Aponakas, who are the three principal mesothelioma surgeons in the United Kingdom, and they are recognized worldwide. 
we made each of them watch each other operate and sign it off to make sure that the operation is standardized. Then any other surgeon coming in, we made them watch the, 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 the operation and sign them off. In addition, we developed a surgical manual so that the operations will be done the same way. After that, I personally reviewed all the operation notes to ensure that the quality was there. Above that, we got the Data Safety Monitoring Committee, which uh, includes Professor Valerie Rush. We had um, Joe Freeberg, we had Harvey Pass on to audit the surgical outcomes and results to make sure that it was up to standard. Finally, we imputed a subgroup analysis of the design phase so that one center was specifically chosen as a non-expert site. And guess what? There was no difference in survival between the four expert sites and the one non-expert site. So we've answered that question definitively, and that's in the manuscript as well. Look forward to, to seeing that, Eric. Paul, I'm a medical oncologist. I'm a little less familiar with it. It, it sounds like a very difficult type of trial to do, uh, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Am I accurate in that? I mean, I, I, I would agree with that statement. I mean, we're all shut down uh, in the U.S. We're barely performing major operations. So I, I guess so, yeah. I do have a question for you, Paula, about the cost-effectiveness. Uh, ISOC is known, for, we're an international society. Part of the study was evaluating cost-effectiveness. How is that important when we try to take the study results to a global scale? To a global scale, in my opinion, is definitively important. It is probably more important in, pay in countries where the medical system is controlled by the government. So countries like Canada, UK, and others where the government is fully paying for everything, probably, I'm guessing, they invest more time and resources in doing studies to confirm cost effectiveness. Where we work in the US, we don't see as many studies for that. And I have, Dr. Lin, go ahead, and we follow with a question after that. So most studies of this scale and size, and uh, MARS-2 was a 1.9 million funded, national funded study, we have very detailed cost effectiveness studies. But the cost effectiveness has two components to it, cost and effectiveness. Normally, you have another paper on cost-effectiveness because the outcome is not effective. There's no requirement for a cost-effectiveness study. So in MARS-2, what we did was we tabulated the total costs and to present it that if you did choose to do it, that's how much more you would spend. And my follow-up question is to the two of you. We treat humans and we treat our patients and we know the data, but we all have here over and over again, and now we introduction on neoadjuvant therapy. Our patients want their disease out. It's that psychological aspect. Uh, I struggle with my younger women going into neoadjuvant trials. They're like, just take it out. So I will start with you, Paula, and then with you, Eric. Paula, how will you explain to a patient that says, just take it out. I want this out of my body. I just want to make a statement that I am a very equipoised person regarding both the trial and the treatment options for mesothelioma because I am not a primary surgeon that performs mesothelioma surgery. 
However, I work probably in one of the largest centers in the U.S. that treat patients with mesothelioma. I actually pulled up the numbers of our institution just to have an idea of what you know could be called a high-volume center. I think you're right. The patients in general, they see the, the concept of removing the disease equal to cure. This is an extremely complex operation. I think that with the data that we have now, we cannot offer this operation to any patient. However, I must say, and this is a question for Professor Lim, in the manuscript, in the version of the manuscript that I received, I didn't see any multivariable analysis putting together elements as age, histology, um, sex. So I, I don't know, maybe the trial was not designed to identify subgroups that could potentially benefit from this. So I think that there is more data to come. And as he mentioned, we will see more information in the main manuscript. But I think that the MARS-2 trial could potentially ad- uh, identify a subgroup of patients where there could be, again, potentially a clear benefit. Eric, how will you start the conversation with patients? So I really respect uh, shared decision-making for patients. And if patients simply want it out, the General Medical Council of UK, they have some guidelines that we don't assume we know what patients want. We don't project our own values on you know what they feel is important. If we were to say um, this surgery increase your risk of death by 28% and they still would want to have it, <clears throat> we need to be respectful of that. But it doesn't mean that the surgeon necessarily needs to offer it. If the surgeon feels that this is an option which is harmful, he or she has the option to refer the patient for a second opinion. That's how we would approach it. Thank you. Last question, Eric, sort of more of a direct one. Um, is there any patient today going forward with mesothelioma where you would recommend surgery? I think that's a very difficult question to answer, but uh, I've spoken to Valerie Roche about this, and she said that there are patients with disease that are so localized, the extremely rare ones, for which she would she would consider offering the operation. The only difficulty is that we can't identify them preoperatively. Let's turn to a, a different topic here, uh, one on detecting lung cancer earlier. We're joined by Dr. P.C. Yang from the National Taiwan University College of Medicine and National Taiwan University Hospital, the Institute of Biomedical Sciences in Taiwan. Uh, and your group presented some other data on early lung cancer detection. P.C., can you walk us through uh, what, what those data showed? Okay, actually, um, you look at the global instance of lung cancer in neighbor smoker, it is increasing globally, and especially in East Asia. Uh, Asia accounts for 60% of lung cancer instance and 62% of lung cancer mortality in East Asia. And most of the East Asian countries, especially in women, they did not have smoking history. In Taiwan, two-thirds of lung cancer patients, they did not have smoking history. And in women, lung cancer is number one cause of cancer mortality, and 94% of them, they did not smoke. So, you want to improve lung cancer survival, you need to cover 
or need to increase the um, uh, eligibility or screening to cover lung cancer in never smoker, not only cover heavy smoker, because most of the uh, two-thirds of our lung cancer patients actually, they did not smoke. That's why we start to work on the pathogenesis uh, to ask whether the lung cancer in never smoker is a different disease and we do show that actually it is a different disease. The um, risk factors, the uh, pathogenesis, uh, the driver gene profiles, and also some endogenous factors, they are totally different from smoking-related lung cancer. So that's why we started a talent study to um, do the rotocity screening um, to see whether we can uh, use rotor CT screening to detect lung cancer earlier, and we get the very promising result. And based on that, um, we convinced our government to start nationwide rotor CT screening since July 1st last year. And in this presentation, we report the uh, one-year result. And the results show that actually we focused on two populations. One is the heavy smoker, 30-pack years, who agree to quit smoking. Another group is never smoker, but they have family history. And in the past one year, we screened nearly uh, 50,000 of them, and we identified 531 lung cancer patients, and 85% of them are stage 0 to 1 disease. Even the stage 1 disease is already uh, 77%. And the lung cancer detection rate is about 1.1%. And interestingly, those with family history, the detection rate is higher than those heavy smokers. The detection rate in non-smoker with family history is 1.4%, but in heavy smoker, it is 0.6%. In those heavy smoker with family history, it's 0.9%. So the result is quite consistent with our Terran study. So the government is very... Uh, very uh, exciting to see that result. We hope that we can uh, improve the uh, five-year survival uh, and also double the stage one, stage one disease in a short time period. So there's two aspects very important here I want to ask. Yes. Um, family history has been something that we haven't paid a lot of attention in lung cancer until recently. How this came about in, as one of the risk factors that was included in the study? Actually, we have another study. We follow nearly 1,000 subjects with family history of lung cancer. And in, we follow up around 10 years, and we found that the cumulated lung cancer detection rate is 4.5% after 10 years. And those with um, simplex family uh, is about... Uh, 3.4%, but for those with multiplex family, increased to 7.7%. It is very interesting. You, you find that uh, those non-smoking lung cancer tend to have family clustering. And we do identify some gene associated with familial lung cancer. So the uh, lung cancer with family history, especially first-degree family, they do have high risk. There was a comment by the discussant um, that, you know, is it possible, while well, we are detecting more cancers, and while there was a pretty impressive stage migration, um, is it possible that we're just detecting indolent cancers, and that would be 
little bit less impactful on long-term survival, which uh, might warrant something like a randomized study. What are your thoughts on his comments? Yeah, the fact is that in, uh, in our current status, in women with lung cancer uh, at diagnosis, half of them, more than 50% of them, stage 4 disease. So the outcome is very poor. So you got, need to do something because 94% of them are never smoker. That's why we start a study. And we do observe increase in stage 1 disease. But this is the first time we start to observe declining of stage 4 disease, especially in women. So that seems that we are able to make the stage shift, especially in um, women, never smoking lung cancer. Therefore, we hope that we can improve the survival. That's a very important point. It is about the sex difference we have seen. Yes. Do you think we have stronger recommendations for the patients we know previous tobacco history and biological sex should be included into that as a risk factor? Well, yes. I, actually, uh, there's a recent study, a meta-analysis published in JTO uh, 2023. In that meta-analysis, the... Uh, they analyzed uh, 14 uh, studies, 13 from them from Asia, and they found that the risk of lung cancer in Asian women who never smoke is pretty similar to men ever smoke, or even similar to the uh, men with heavy smoker smoking history. So let's indicate that uh, Asian women seems to have high risk. We don't know why, but in our previous uh, proteogenomic study, we do identify some endogenous uh, genetic accessibility, like alphabet signature. It's very uh, commonly seen in those young women, never smoker, lung cancer. Another possibility is the environmental factors. Actually, we do find some carcinogen signature, especially the um, nitro-polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon, which is commonly seen in air pollution, that kind of signature is commonly seen in uh, non-smoking lung cancer. Another endogenous, uh, another environmental carcinogen is the um, nitrosamine. Nitrosamine is uh, commonly used as a food preservatives in Eastern Asian region. So we sought probably some endogenous factors and some exogenous factor and also the genetic sensibility. Well, I, I, I do think that in women who had risk factors, they should be screened. My question, my next question, that Professor Yan, is about how can we take these results in a Asian population and try to expand it? How will you see we can expand this, this data to other parts of the country, Latin America, the US, Europe, and other parts of Southeast Asia? Yeah, actually, uh, uh, in September uh, 9th, the first day of the uh, conference, we have a debate on whether we should screen for non-smoking lung cancer. During that uh, uh, debate, actually, we talk in more detail, in, in depth, regarding whether we should screen for non-smoking lung cancer. And, and actually, we also form an Asian uh, consensus uh, expert meeting try to because 
non-smoking lung cancer is more prevalent in Eastern Asian region. So we want to come up with a consensus and a, a collaborative uh, research on that. And actually, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, they also sh- uh, show the same picture. So they are starting to do the local CD screening using a pretty similar protocol. The Taiwan has really led the way, and these are, I think, bold, innovative, and, and really show a lot of initiative, amazing results here. My question is sort of building on, on your last comments about generalizability. And I'd love to get input from, from Eric and Paula on how you look at these data and how they apply to, to the UK and to the US. Uh, Eric, maybe we'll start with you. You see these data. Can we apply these to the population at home? Um, thanks. Uh, yes, I think the data is definitely applicable. In fact, we published a paper from our Royal Brompton Hospital series reporting that the incidence of non-smoking lung cancer has doubled in the last seven years in my institution. These patients tend to be picked up incidentally as a nodule on other forms of CT scanning for non-lung cancer-related causes. We also anticipate that if this trend carries on, we will see it very similar to uh, East Asia, where the incidence of non-smoking lung cancer gradually uh, increases in terms of the ratio because of the effective stop smoking cancer campaign of the 80s. So at some point, I believe in the West, this uh, demographics will cross and Taiwan is ahead of us and we have to quickly learn from them and start implementing it because this is going to be the next thing that's going to hit the UK. Wow. wow. Paula, your thoughts on the US population? Is this something we can apply? Is this, do we need to start doing these studies in the US? Yeah, I, I, you know, I wonder how the U.S. will accept, you know, this data to apply to the North American population. Although the NLST trial was one of the first trials performed in large scale for screening, how long did it take us in the U.S. to adopt those findings, right? We're seeing more and more lung cancer in non-smokers and females, I think the actions must be taken because this is not the first data, the first time that we see data showing this. I I agree that these are impressive results and uh, this is a very valid trial. So it's very important. Can I just uh, make a point that, you know, the NLST is widely accepted uh, as the indication of risk for screening. PAC is more than 30, age more than 55. But the pickup rate for NLST for lung cancer is 1.2%. And in Taiwan, the non-never-smoker screening, your pickup rate is, what, 2.4? And so if you say OK to NLST, you could say double OK to the talent data because it, it completely is twice that you're of your Western high-risk population. So it's a complete no-brainer from that equation. I, I, you know, I totally agree with you if we put it just on the numbers. The problem is what we call the personalized medicine. And we have seen it in several clinical scenarios that lung cancer in Asian, in Orient, in the Orient is different from the Occident. So I think the results are very valid. I think that they must be taken in consideration. I just don't know if we are ready to adopt those, you know, as of now. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, well I, I do uh, agree that the uh, the um, the screening for smoker and never smoker should be separate. 
the biology of non-smoking lung cancer, they are quite different. They usually somewhat indolent, grow very slowly, and we may not need annual screening total CT. Maybe you just need every two or three years of screening, and we need to identify the risk factors and the predictors separate from the heavy smokers. So I, I, I do think that uh, we need to personalize or individualize or do a precision medicine for screening for non-smoking lung cancer. Um, definitely important points. But the data from our institution suggested that whilst the non-smoking lung cancer population after lung cancer surgery does better in general, it wasn't that good. It, the sep we published the survival curves and the separation for the established, well, I think larger, these are not screen detected, right? These are incidentally detected. Um, the survival wasn't that much better. Yes, that is advanced stage. Advanced stage, then uh, the outcome is pretty similar. So the usually they initially grow very slowly and to a certain point start to progress. I think that factoring in the d different biologies, different cancers are going forward. We do need to think about, about region, but these are some, some powerful data that has been presented today. We're going to take a little time to digest these, look forward to these manuscripts, but uh, really highlights of the meeting. Thank you to the three of you for sharing your insights, for making our conversation realistic and practical to our audience. Thank you, Professor Lin, Professor Yan, and Professor Ogalde. And we will continue to talk to you as the data we evolve in the next years. Well, now let's turn to one of the medical oncology studies. We saw the long-awaited results from a large phase three trial called the FLORA-2 study in the presidential plenary today. And Arjus, this was presented by one of your colleagues. It is my true honor to introduce Dr. Pasi Jani. He's the director of the Thoracic Oncology Program at Dana-Farber, as well as a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Jani, you presented the FLORA-2 trial, which is osimertinib with or without platinum-based chemotherapy as first-line treatment in patients with EGFR metastatic advanced no-small cell lung cancer. Dr. Jani, can you walk us to the results of the study? Sure. Thank you, uh, Dr. Flores. Yeah, so the study asked the question about uh, um, evaluating a more intensified initial treatment regimen um, for advanced EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, that is combining chemotherapy with osimertinib versus osimertinib alone. Uh, and there were previous studies that suggested that chemotherapy and EGFR TKIs could be beneficial, including with osimertinib, although no, no randomized trials with osimertinib. And the, and the trial showed that there was about a nine-month improvement in progression-free survival when platinum-based chemotherapy, including um, uh, maintenance chemotherapy with pemetrexid, was combined with osimertinib uh, compared to osimertinib alone. Um, and that uh, there, uh, that benefit um, extended to all the different subgroups of patients that were being evaluated in the study. Uh, there were more toxicities with the combination compared to the single agent, as you would expect, because you're adding chemotherapy to osimertinib, although there were uh, no new side effects that hadn't been seen before. The side effects were sort of additive of osimertinib and uh, and, and chemotherapy. The study uh, 
this was just the first analysis of the study. We'll continue to follow the study. It was too uh, early in the analysis to know whether the combination impacts overall survival compared to single-agent osimertinib, uh, and that'll come at a future future time point. And I have a question about the results that was impressive to many of us was in patients that have CNS metastasis, they have a great benefit. Can you walk us through some of those findings? Yeah, so this was uh, looking at uh, systemic progression uh, in patients with and without CNS metastases. And CNS metastases are, uh, 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 in some studies, associated with a poor prognosis in patients with EGFR mutant non-smosal lung cancer. And hence, uh, it was uh, 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 great to see that the combination had uh, 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 perhaps even a greater benefit compared to those individuals that did not um, have uh, uh, CNS uh, metastases. And um, this was systemic uh, disease progression. The, there are ongoing analyses, which will hopefully uh, be uh, uh, available later on this year, looking at actual responses in the CNS in patients with CNS disease, uh, intracranial responses. We know that osimertinib effectively gets into the CNS and is, it can treat CNS metastases. We don't always think of chemotherapy in that light, um, but uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the actual CNS responses in that regard. But systemically, clearly, giving, giving chemotherapy and osimertinib was better uh, than osimertinib alone. And whether that reflects the impact also on the intracranial activity or purely on the systemic activity, I think we'll see from further analyses. Pasi, you showed uh, up front two different Kaplan-Meier curves. The primary endpoint for this was progression-free survival by investigator. You also had a, a blinded independent review. The hazard ratios were, were the same, really, between the two. In fact, the hazard ratios for most of the subsets are pretty consistent, uh, but you know, the, the absolute numbers are a little different. Can you explain to the listeners, maybe they don't have as much experience, sort of what, what these two curves mean? How should they look at that? Well, I think I think the fact that they're the hazard ratios, which reflect the, you know, uh, uh, change over the entire uh, uh, curve as opposed to a specific time point, uh, are the same. I think is is good. I think there's some minor numerical differences uh, in the in the uh, um, actual medians, although the delta between the single agent and the combination was similar. 8.8 versus 9.5 months, so fairly similar um, in, in my mind. And, and uh, then we looked at it at landmark points of one year and two year, and they're also fairly similar between the investigator assessed and the independent central review. We always knew that you know, adding chemotherapy would, would improve PFS to some degree. It was always a matter of, of how much. And um, I think this exceeded some people's initial estimates. You showed PFS too as well, and I think it's an important question because you know if chemotherapy improves PFS, the real question is: is it better to give osimertinib and chemotherapy together up front, or to give osimertinib first and then give chemotherapy at the time of progression, concurrent versus sequential? And Flora Two was designed to sort of look at that question, right? Not really to look at that question specifically. Um, because there wasn't as extensive, um, it wasn't, wasn't specifically designed to look at that question, uh, because the subsequent therapy wasn't mandated. And I think if you were to look at that question, uh, you would want to ask the question of giving 
chemotherapy concurrently with osimertinib or giving osimertinib first followed by either chemotherapy or adding chemotherapy to osimertinib. I think, I think it's an important thing to, to also note that the cancer may not be the same after treatment with osimertinib, meaning you've had this dramatic benefit, there may be some residual disease that remains and may start to regrow, but it may, we don't know that it has the same sensitivity to chemotherapy at that juncture than it does in the previously untreated setting. And so that, I think, I think one of the interpretations or, or one thing we should be cautious about interpreting from the trial is that that means that adding chemotherapy at any point during somebody's treatment course who's on osimertinib is the same as adding it from the beginning because I, I don't think the trial answers that and, and it may be, they, these may be two biologically different cancers. That's a great point. So not necessarily something you could just add up, get to the same point. Correct. Um, for PFS2, uh, we saw some degree of benefit. The OS curves uh, cross overlap, but you made a comment that it's a little bit too early to look at those, right? Correct. Yes, there was only about twenty percent maturity in those uh, curves, and and that is a, a fairly early time point to look at that. Maybe one last question uh, on the initial interpretation here. Do you think these data are practice changing today? I think clearly they show that you can add chemotherapy, and that can lead to a clinical benefit. I don't know that that means that every patient needs to get chemotherapy and and osimertinib from the beginning, and I think. One of the things that we hope to learn more from the subsequent analyses of this study, as well as from other ongoing studies, is who really needs chemotherapy and who is likely to most benefit from chemotherapy, because it does come at some cost. There are some toxicity considerations and having to come for chemotherapy every three weeks and and, 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 and so forth. So I think, you know, hopefully we can balance that and 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 you know if there are clinical features molecular features in addition to having an egfr mutation in one's cancer are there other molecular features or ct dna features that tell us that chemotherapy is particularly beneficial in in one one subset of individuals over another i think i think that's that's where it would really change practice i think i, I don't think i think i think Today, we still have a choice of single-agent osimertinib or combination with chemotherapy. Excellent. For uh, another perspective, we are also joined uh, by Emmy Basio, who's a patient research advocate in the ISLAC STARS program and a board member for Lung Cancer Canada. Emmy, you were in the audience for the, the presidential plenary. It's very well received. Uh, Emmy, what was your initial impression of hearing these FLORA2 data? So I think it's important to go back and start to the fact that osimertinib for patients like me and many other patients, really is a miracle drug. It has great cancer control. Patients are able to live their lives like they did before diagnosis, very convenient. You don't have to attend at a hospital to receive chemotherapy. And so it was really, in my view, very high standard to see what we could do that it would be better than that because it really is of significant benefit to patients. The Progression-free survival was really high in this study, and it's hard not to walk away and look at an additional nine months and think that that's very important. But I agree that really the data is early and that an important feature will be to see how this plays out for overall survival. So as we know, chemotherapy has described um, as toxicity. When you look at the toxicity that was shared in the study, what were your thoughts with the combination? 
I think that the difficulty, again, is that osimertinib is so well, generally well tolerated in the population with some side effects, of course, but very generally pretty tolerable for most patients. And so when you start talking about adding toxicity, you get into the classic patient dilemma, which is quantity versus quality. And so unless you can really show an extensive quantitative benefit, I think that patients are going to be concerned about the adverse effects, and they're going to be concerned about maybe giving up some of their freedom and their their symptom-free status unless there's really a quali- quantitative benefit that meets that, that endpoint. So my question is to the two of you. I will start with you, Amy. We know that 25% of the patients remain in pemetrexid. Will you see at the trial different if it would be four cycles of induction chemotherapy with osimertinib and the maintenance phase of the pemetrexid won't be there? That is a really interesting question because you would assume that that would also reduce the toxicity and the additional toxicity. It reduces the inconvenience of a patient having to really schedule their life around attending for chemotherapy. So I think that would be a very interesting and appealing piece for a patient to see. But again, you then have to weigh that by, does that affect the progression-free survival? Does it affect the overall survival? Because if you're giving that up, then what? maybe there's no benefit to even having the four cycles. Dr. Denis? Yeah, I think think that is an important uh, question. We don't know what part of the chemotherapy here was important. And we may not know from this trial meaning that uh, was it just the induction? Could you achieve the same results if you just received four cycles of sort of combination platinum pemetrexid and then went on to osmertinib maintenance um, and and or how important was the pemetrexid maintenance there? There are certainly cumulative uh, side effects of, uh, of, of pemetrexid. Uh, so, um, so it's not without its side effects. And uh, maybe in future studies we'll be able to learn um, what the added value is in terms of the efficacy endpoint. Are, are there specific patients where you might be a little more likely to add chemotherapy? What kind of phenotype are you thinking of going forward? I think um, certainly if you look at just the common EGFR mutations that were studied here, the L858R mutation tends to be not perhaps as well uh, treated with single-agent osimertinib as the exon-19 deletion. And that would potentially be a population of individuals where I would uh, consider um, adding chemotherapy to osimertinib. I will say that I treated my first patient with chemotherapy osimertinib last week and was an individual with symptomatic and fairly high burden of disease. And so I wanted to uh, give sort of the maximal benefit of, of, of therapy by combining both at that juncture. As a follow-up question to that, we know that EG, sometimes EGFR comes with co-mutations. Mm-hmm. Will those co-mutations play a role to identify the patients that we benefit from? The- yeah, the one, that, one that's been looked at most extensively are P53 co-mutations. And some of that will be will come from this trial. There are, uh, we'll, we'll be able to look at some of that. I'm not sure it's going to be available in every single patient, but hopefully in a significant proportion. And that is thought to be a mutation that um, 
uh, leads to uh, patients that have the or tumors that have the commutation tend to have uh, perhaps earlier uh, progression than in the absence of the commutations it has a sort of a negative prognostic implication. So that could be a population uh, that would benefit from the combination. And I think we want to um, continue to look at that um, uh, uh, in, the, in the patients that were treated in this trial. I will mention that there is a study ongoing in China that specifically looks at patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer and TP53 co-mutations and randomizes patients to osimertinib to chemo-osimertinib. So there's asking that question specifically in that uh, patient population. So I think we'll gain a lot of information from that study as well. I don't know exactly where that study is at the current time in terms of enrollment. So we can safely say that the story from Flora 2 has started today, but we're going to continue to hear the story over time. We'll continue to learn um, by studying uh, the patients that participated in the study and and uh, uh, hopefully gain some additional insights into the question of who needs chemotherapy. My next question is to Amy. You were right there in the presidential symposium how would you explain this trial to a patient or a caregiver? Well, I think that, that the real value is yet to come in this study in the sense that there are, we know, patients who don't do as well on osimertinib. And for me, one of the exciting pieces was to see the increased PFS for the subset of patients who pre present with brain metastases because I feel that's a situation where if there is progression, it can be very symptomatic. It can be very devastating for the patient, particularly if it's progression in the brain. And so that seems to be a really important piece of this puzzle that we're learning early on that I think can really inform and change practice. And similarly, I think it's really exciting for the analysis that's about to come to see those patients who otherwise might not get a long benefit on osimertinib. If we can start to identify that strata of patients, that'll be so important for this trial because then you'll really have a targeted um, patient population to which they will receive a significant benefit from this trial. Now, you, you brought up a, a phrase that I'd love to hear a little more about, about scheduling your life around treatment. And uh, you know that's something that's difficult for us to to measure in a study like that, but a consideration for a lot of patients. Talk a little bit more about how that's important when you're thinking about decisions and the shared decision-making model. Sure. And really, I think there is a real psychological difficulty with most cancer patients about the thought of taking chemotherapy. I think that it's an uphill battle for them. When patients are diagnosed with lung cancer, they can it's, it's a shock. No matter who you are or where you are in your life, it's a shock. And when you have to then be placed on chemotherapy, it seems to really add to the, to the situation psychologically, rightly or wrongly, but psychologically, it really is a, is a difficult hurdle. And so when you're able to control the cancer with a pill that you take once a day from anywhere, like in Singapore, and you don't have to worry that I have to schedule my life around this three-week cycle, which could be interrupted if there's a problem with your platelets, and suddenly now your chemo's pushed back a week, and then your travel plans or your life plans are changed. And those are really important quality of life considerations. And so 
that's, I think, one of the pieces that's also upcoming that I think patients will be very interested in, in seeing is the patient-reported um, outcomes of this and how they they view the adverse effects and how they view those, I don't even call them inconveniences because they really are so much more about that than that. It doesn't really, that word doesn't really seem to do it justice, but those are really important considerations for patients and their lives and, and the people around them and trying to live their lives as normally as possible after a difficult diagnosis like this. It's important as we go forward, we're moving away from a paternalistic point. And the reason we want to share these decisions is because these values are different from patient to patient. And it's important we not make assumptions that people you know, would want chemotherapy or that they would not want chemotherapy. Plus, you just delivered this and, and clearly it was a setting where the patient was receptive. And uh, you know, and any thought on, on how to have those conversations? Yeah, I think uh, it is, uh, you know, of course, explaining to patients the the potential benefits, but also the, the side effects and the downsides of chemotherapy and, um, you know, not just the visits, but toxicities and, you know, what can happen with those. So I think, I think it's always a, it's a conversation that we as providers need to have with our patients to explain the pros and cons and, and, you know, decide on together what is the best approach, what is the best treatment strategy for that individual patient. And, 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 and I think you're right. I think the convenience of being able to take a pill anywhere in the world and bring the bottle pills with you, it's hard to replace that. Hard to make it more convenient. You can only make it less convenient. It's good to have different options. I think uh, we should congratulate them on, on good results here. Um, a lot to talk about, and you know, the, we walk out with a lot of questions. Can we extrapolate this to other targets? Uh, you know, how long do we need to continue? The Pemetrex said, do we have markers where people might need to continue or could stop? There are a lot of other questions we have. We'll get more answers as time goes on. I'd love to keep the conversation going, but we are we're at time for this episode. Uh, so I want to thank our guests um, for, for this portion here. Um, Dr. Pastiani and Emmy Basio, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this has been the Monday highlights of the WCLC 23 for Lung Cancer Considered. Please tune in tomorrow for the next episode. Uh, thank you all for joining. Bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, Write comments and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.